Welcome to season two of Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. This podcast is produced by Beautiful Teaching. Our goal is to immerse you into the beauty of good teaching with master teachers in classical education. Our formative sessions are designed to be live so that you can experience classical education through participating and doing. The sessions we offered this past season were a hit. Back by popular demand, we have just launched a list of new courses and book seminars which start in January. For up-to-date course lists, you can visit us at beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com, or you can also visit our uh, podcast website, classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash courses. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jared Looney. He holds a BA from Berea College in Theater and Classical Civilizations, and he attended Royal Holloway University of London, where he earned his master's degree and doctorate of philosophy and classics. Dr. Looney has taught English, history, Spanish, and Latin, among other courses, and he currently serves as Millennium Charter Academy's upper school director. Dr. Looney, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me, Trey. I'd love to start us out by just deciding to center our conversation on humane education. In some of the conversations and emails I've exchanged with you, it sounds like to a large degree, uh, your mission or uh, a key focus of your work is to figure out what a humane education looks like and how you can practice that as your role in your role as a teacher and now as an administrator at your current school. And within this context, one word that some of our listeners may be familiar with is scole. It's a Latin word, and it sounds a lot like school. But what does it mean? Could you tell us what scole means? And uh, perhaps um, as you unpack that word for us, tell us a little bit about your vision of scole in particular for teachers. Okay. Um, This is a word that I, I really like to talk about. In fact, um, one of my my teachers in an interview recently uh, with, with another teacher coming up said, if you don't know what the word scole is, it's one of Dr. Looney's favorites. And it is. And honestly, looking at the uh, the podcast, it's a topic that's becoming kind of popular here. Uh, back on May 5th, of course, you all had uh, Dr. Hartenberg on here who talked about his Aristotelian education, which is an excellent book on on Scole, and it's one I would recommend people reading. Um, Just go back to May 5th if you want to hear that, and uh, you can go to Classical Academic Press to pick up the book. Last I checked on Amazon, it was sold out, but Cap has it. So Scole, for those who don't know, is the Greek word for leisure, um, we eventually get the Latin scola and English and Latin scolia, the German schula, and, and the English school. Now, we often don't think about school as being leisurely, um, but the Greeks thought about things very differently than we did, or we do rather. Um, the Greeks called the the workaday time, the time in the fields, they called it ascole, not at leisure. And the Romans took that word otium, meaning leisure, and uh, that's where we get negotium, negotiate. It's time when we're not at leisure. Before we, we lean into that, I find it really interesting to look at how much we flipped vocabulary in the English language. Um, and in a lot of that, that means we flipped our whole mentality of how we think about work and, and leisure. Um, looking at, at Joseph Pieper in his Leisure, the Basis of Culture, we've, we've shifted to a society almost of total work. 
And um, we don't talk to people without starting the conversation. Hey, I'm Jared. What do you do? And so that's one of the foundational things we look at when we talk to people is what they do for a living. And, and we wait for evenings and, and weekends so that we can recharge to go back to work or to go back on Monday morning. And, you know, even in the summer, we, we vacate our jobs. We've lost these things because we're looking at time as, as a way to recharge for work. Um, now, Skole is leisure, but it's not idleness. It's not just sitting around binge-watching Netflix. Um, it's time to, to recharge as, as people. Um, so leisure is an idleness. It's... Um, it's the things we do when we're not surviving or, or making our bread, so to speak. It's time when we're not scraping by. The Neanderthals didn't have time for leisure because you can't think about the unseen while you're hunting mammoths. And medieval peasants didn't have time to ponder the cosmos while working the fields. Um, if we're desperately fighting for our lives in our country, like the greatest generation, we don't have time to sit around it and ponder through great literature. But leisure is not the cessation of work. It is an idleness. It's, it's another kind of work. Leisure or, or, or scole is the work that we do to restore human meaning. It's celebration. It's festival. It's restful learning. Um, and I know I'm getting a really long kind of like background into this, but this is something I'm super passionate about. And I go from Aristotle and I go from Pieper and um, a really great thinker on the topic right now, besides um, Dr. Hartenberg that I mentioned earlier is Chris Perrin. Mm, yes. Um, but Scole is a book club with friends and good food and good drink. It's life filled with pondering, with laughter, and that's something we lose so much. Um, with time to pursue those things that are worth pursuing, it's, it's ordering our affections properly. It's, it's human fulfillment. Well, I think that uh, you are really onto something there, and, and to turn people back to Dr. Hartenberg and Dr. Perrin's work, I think, is, I think that's really good advice. Both of those uh, men have been a great influence on me. And I have enjoyed thinking about Scole as it relates to my vocation as a teacher. And it's interesting, whenever I've told students about Scole and made that connection for them between Scole and school, and I don't know how your experience has been, but the students are always shocked. And they, they tell me, well, that's not what school is like at all. I mean, they, uh, you know, even within the context of a very intentional uh, classical Christian environment, there's still something about this vision of Scole, as you just laid it out, that just does not jive with the, uh, the way we think about education. And so in some ways, we're going to have to reimagine education through the lens of Scole. And, and I, I think that uh, to a large degree, our conversation today uh, will at least start us down that road if, uh, if people haven't already begun through the works of the, the gentleman you mentioned. But I want us to uh, go back to something you mentioned about Oscole, because I, I've, there's an irony there for me. So my understanding is when you put the, the A in front of the word, it negates it. And so right. Oscole would be, would be no leisure, right, or a lack of leisure. Yes. And so would, would, the, would the Greeks and then uh, later on, uh, you know, classical educators, would, would they even recognize our, our word schoolwork? Would that even make sense to them? No, I think it very much becomes an oxymoron of sorts. Um, to say that you have schoolwork is to say you have leisure, not leisure. And at the same time, and, and honestly, if you look at a lot of our teachers, I wonder how many of them are at leisure or are they just working? It's not just the students. Um, and, and that becomes 
a real problem. You know, that, that old saying, um, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And uh, our students are almost certainly not looking at, at school and, and being in love with it. I wonder if you could make a distinction for us, and, and I didn't prepare you for this uh, in, in our pre-show conversations, but I wonder if you could make a distinction between um, the idea of um, labora, or, or uh, you know, where we get our word labor, um, because I know that is part and parcel of the Christian vision of, of working together towards something that's good. And of course, you know, what we're not saying is that we're not called to work. Um, at some point, you said that school A is a different type of work. So I guess draw, draw a, uh, a distinction there, there for us between um, what you're saying and what you're not saying in regards to work. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying that, that students shouldn't work. I'm saying that they should work in a way that is enjoyable, and I think teachers should too. But to draw that distinction specifically with the word labor, um, the word labor comes to us from you know French and then back to Latin from labere, meaning to totter. It's, it's to totter under a burden. It, it's to carry something heavy and almost to find a way to, to balance it. Um, and that's very different from the concept of, of working in, in a joyful manner. Um, th does that help draw that distinction to some degree? So, so in, in the monastic setting, I guess what would be going on there would be a willing submission to a difficult task uh, by means of... Um, sort of purgation or or desire to, to kind of like the idea of just bearing one's cross, which can be used metaphorically, but also can can sort of express itself in taking on difficult chores or or taking the form of a servant uh, to to do some difficult task for the community um, that that is that is needed and is useful. Um, but of course, would be different than what's going on, sort of the the contemplative mode that one enters into when one is in the study or in prayer or something something to that effect. Am I am I thinking through this correctly? I think you're thinking through it absolutely wonderfully. Yes. Um, I, I don't think I could actually say it better right now, Trey. That was that was well put. Um, so in thinking about this, I do want to drive this this conversation forward a little bit because we could sit here and think about. The, the philosophical underpinnings of the words that we use all day. In fact, that's something I quite enjoy about the classical tradition. Um, but we do need to think about what this can look like in some form of practicality. So here's an anecdote I find about leisurely learning for students. So several years ago, my wife, um, who's a superb English teacher, if I do say so myself, and, and she is, but her counterpart in AP US history, they found they'd both soon be entering into the Gilded Age. Um, he was doing so in the AP curriculum, you know, because they have a, a guide of how they have to progress. And she was working through the devil in the white city, or, or going to be, um, which is a really interesting book about the World's Fair in Chicago in the late 1800s. And um, I won't go into that. But because they were entering into it together, they decided that their students were going to make their own World's Fair in the school. And uh, so the students took time to investigate the things that they, they loved or were simply fascinated by from this era, um, you know, like Wrigley's gum and the zipper make their their debuts here or the ferris wheel and um in this they then presented all of their findings in in a community setting it wasn't just for their classroom you know it it was everyone was invited from the school from beyond and so there was a, a grammar phase that we saw where the teachers were doing direct instruction and then there was this dialectic phase where they would converse about whatever each student's topic was. And then there was this rhetorical phase where 
they took all of their findings and and presented it and shared it and it, it like i said it was open to the community and it built community now did this directly improve the students odds of passing the ap exams uh, almost certainly not but this was a restful learning experience that was well worth it it took days and weeks to make this a real success and students went home and they were doing their own investigations in their own time. But they did it from a place not of, of labor, of it being forced on them, but from, from leisure. Mm. And these students are now in their third year of college, and they still talk about this experience. So, yeah, go ahead, Trey. I want to hear more about this particular event, Dr. Loney, because I could imagine there being a teacher or there being a parent who would say, well, actually, that sounds like a ton of work. And that does not sound restful in the least. So help me understand what sort of prerequisites or what sort of ideas, what sort of imagination has to be in place within the culture of the class that would allow an event like that, which takes a lot of planning, a lot of um, logistics, a lot of putting things together, uh, how, how do you how do you inspire that sort of activity um, through through a vision of Scole versus it turning into a chore? Okay. Um, well, I, I think the first thing is just reminding ourselves of the language. Um, I I make sure whenever I put in my phone for my my daily chores is I don't call them chores. I, I put in like my Monday duties. Um, and even just changing that language reminds me that this isn't something that I should begrudgingly take on. It's an obligation that I have. So shifting that back into the classroom, if you're sitting there and you're talking with your teachers about bringing these, these things that the teachers themselves love and the students themselves love to making them real, it, it it will it will happen. Now you can't be you can't have this coming from an outsider. I can't be an administrator coming in and saying this is what I need you to do. Um, that love has to come from within the teacher. Another great example: um, just a few months ago, our seniors at MCA were reading Merchant of Venice, and they looked to their teacher, Mr. Cook, and said. We want to put this on as our senior capstone. And there were hours and hours and hours put into putting on a, a pretty decent play. Um, and by pretty decent, I thought it was wonderful. You know, some people might not as much. But the, these kids weren't working, uh, laboring. They... They were doing something that they were truly interested in. Um, we have one girl who wants to go into cosmetology school. So she did the hair and makeup designs and then their executions. It's, it's about, again, going to what I said a second ago. It's about doing what you love. Yeah. Um, now, of course, I'm not promoting some Montessori type um, investigation where it's always just what you love. But to get to the rhetoric phase of something, you know, there has to be personal buy-in. Right. So, so in a sense, we could say that, you know, whether it's something that, that comes up from within the student or if it's something that is so well-loved in front of the students that they eventually come around to loving it, you know, the, the teacher sort of has this influence on ordering the, the, the students' loves to where they see that this would be worthwhile um, it, it puts a different mindset in place, and that can radically transform the activity itself. What, was, what can be in one context really laborious, really um, tedious, uh, I can't believe Mr. So-and-so is making us do this, or we just need to get through this so that we can get on to the next thing or get the grade and, 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 and just kind of progress forward. Uh, the, the vision of school a can actually change the the heart and the attitude of the teacher and the student and if mm -hmm. the school itself has a culture of school a 
then it can buy it can invite its parents and 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 like you said other people in the community to come and bear witness to that and what would have otherwise been you know a real a real uh um you know hairball of of, of an event to put together turns into an expression of love and and that's a pretty powerful thing for one little word <laughs> scole <laughs> it is uh, it's it's such a huge word though um i mean as a Latin teacher in the classroom, I, I could have made us drone through, you know, amo, amas, amat, amamus, amatis, amant. But when we chanted, and we chanted a lot, it was it was with with joy. Hmm. Um, you know, it became such a, a part of the culture of my classroom that actually the uh, the soccer boys when they would go out to do their warm ups would chant, oh, S-T, Moose-T, and, and, and just internalize and love it, and then bring that back into the classroom. Um, so y- you have to love what you're doing in order for them to love it. Yes. We've, we've been dancing around this word culture, and I, I just so appreciate how you, you think about the importance of, of words and using words in a very intentional way, and, and also being reintroduced to words uh, so that we can understand exactly what what power is is in them, you know, the ability to to name something appropriately and rightly, I, I think, uh, is is a very powerful thing indeed. And so, when we think about culture, we we have to recognize that a culture, to go back to something you said about putting on this this world fair, can't be something that's forced like from the top down, right? The administrator can't come in and be like, "You guys are going to have." In the military, we call this mandatory fun time, right? Like you guys are going to be forced to have fun. And I know corporate cultures do this a lot. You know, I'm going to say culture and put it in quotes uh, because it's it's a fake culture. It's an anti-culture. What's going on there is is, is really not true culture. Culture requires cultivation. Mm -hmm. And so it's this tending of the heart and uh, sowing of the seeds. And, and, you know, I'm sorry to Kind of keep pulling things into the abstract, but it's it's just it's it's my role on the show. <laughs> I understand. So help us understand uh, what um, what would be another example. Let's let's think specifically of the life of the faculty, because one thing one of the things I'm convinced of is that um, you know we can put forward this vision, and individual teachers can can struggle to cultivate their own classrooms, but unless the faculty as a whole is being called into this life together. Right, John Senior calls uh, a faculty a faculty of friends. Yeah, unless they can be um, invited into this life together, I'm convinced that students students call our bluff and they say like, okay, well, this sounds this you know I, I can see why you'd want me to do this, but you don't you don't live like this, and Mr. So and So across the hall doesn't live like this, right? So what are some of the responsibilities that a, a, an administration does have? Whereas the teacher is inviting students, how does the administration invite the faculty into a life of scholae? What are your ideas? Um, this is actually something I'm, I'm really excited about implementing next year. Um, in order to get students to order their affections and time towards scholae, we have to see teachers who model this behavior. And for teachers who model this behavior, you need administrators who model this behavior. Um, just yesterday morning, I was walking down the beach. Uh, yeah, I'm at the beach, so it's uh, a little bit of fun today. But uh, this this um, headmaster at another school said he's working 75 hours a week. And I said, well, you have to stop that. Um, and I, I reminded him that the, the fish rots from the head, as it were. Um, you know, if, if your admin are never seen enjoying themselves or, or putting their own time toward leisure, then their teachers won't. And if the teachers don't, the students won't. So um, I think one of the administration's jobs is to first imagine a schedule that has enough time for teachers to plan and grade. So we are moving to a modified um, AB block next year with, with some other pieces. But on, let's say, Monday, this teacher might teach a 45-minute course on grammar and composition. 
and two 85-minute courses on ancient history, and then one course. It's, it's an elective, but we're calling them Scole courses um, because they're, they're high interest, low stakes. But that means this teacher now has 85 additional minutes for planning every day. So if a teacher has that much time, then that means he or, or she then has the time at school or, or at home or preferably both to, to take time to do things that they love. So I'm going to be encouraging my teachers next year to take 15, 20 minutes of their planning every few days to go into one of the common spaces, you know, and if you're the band teacher, play your instrument with, with an emphasis on play. Um, the drama teacher can go in and rehearse monologues. The art teacher could, you know, create something ars gratia artis. The lit teacher could go in and put pen and paper together or, or do some pleasurable reading. And I, I think it needs to be in a public space to help grow that culture. Um, you know, every so often, people will find me sitting in the lobby rather than in my office. What are you doing? Well, I'm reading through Homer right now. Why? Because I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. oh, that's, that's, that's beautiful. And I think this is going to speak to the heart of a lot of teachers because I can, I can speak from <clears throat> my own limited experience, uh, knowing that, you know, as, as a, as a first year literature teacher, for example, I found myself recognizing the the need for me to to do a lot more reading than I had ever done before because I wanted to be able to not just um not just keep pace or 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 in some instances try to get ahead of you know the class in terms of where we're at in the story but also I just falling in love and enjoying what I'm doing so much just started collecting commentaries and and finding essays and just bringing all this stuff in that would just really flesh out my own uh, knowledge and experience of the, of the, of the text. And then I could, I could go into the classroom and essentially narrate that back. Right. right. The students who don't have the time, you know, to, to, to do a lot of this um, just being in a different place in life are sort of looking to me to be the first student to, to, to model this and then to, to bring it to them and, and invite them into further reading and, you know, put together, you know, uh, a collection of, of resources. I found that, you know, when I ask my, my juniors and seniors, for example, to write papers, knowing that they would immediately turn to the internet and go to Google Scholar, if, if they know that, you know, they, they may just Google it. But yeah. anything that they'd find online, I know that most of those things that are going to appear on the first couple of pages of the search engine are just total garbage. <laughs> and right. so like, I felt responsible for finding things that I could put together a library of sorts for my seniors, for their senior thesis, a physical library in the room of senior thesis resources that were specific to each of their topics. I love this as a teacher and every good teacher I know, if, if he or she could just spend more time doing stuff like that, they would just fall in love even more with their job uh, because it's not, it's, it's more than a job at that point. It's, it's, a, it's a life. And so um, you mentioned just being, uh, having some time to read. I remember my, uh, my principal and if he's listening, amazing principal <laughs> and gave us a lot of time to do a lot of what you're talking about, um, whether he knew he was building that into the schedule or not. He was, it was very important for him to, uh, to give teachers a lot of planning time. Um, but I became so efficient with my, with my grading and doing all the administrative tasks that I found myself having time in the day to be able to read. But there's, and this had nothing to do with him and it had nothing to do necessarily with anyone in particular. It's just sort of some of the baggage we have when we think about what we should be doing at, at work. Right. I knew that reading was the most important thing I could be doing right now for me and for my students was reading this book. But whenever the principal or some other person would walk by and look in, there's always that awkwardness of like, are you working right now? Or what, like, what are you doing? <laughs> right? right. It was, it was palpable. And I, and I've talked to a lot of teachers and shared that story. And a lot of teachers feel like if they're not 
sort of grinding away at something that they're somehow not at work. Could you speak to that feeling a little bit and 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 maybe just kind of riff on that for a bit? Well, yeah, I absolutely could. Um, that that's an anxiety that you're talking about, and and it comes to us, I think, from uh, th- this need to be busy for for busyness or or business, um, because t- to me, in in my you know, I, I love to toy in etymology. I, I'm not, you know, a trained philologist. I don't even know, even know if we train philologists properly anymore. Um, you know, Tolkien would suggest that we don't, but that was a different show as well. And, um, you know, it, it comes from this old English busyness does uh, from Bezig, right? Meaning like continually at an energetic place, which is what we expect, right? We have this this expectation that that work is always doing something and it has to be something that we can see because again, we have this culture of of total work. And um, I think schools, good schools at least need to, to step away from that. And if you do see it as an administrator and you are curious, um, you could say, hey, what are you reading? And honestly, that could start a conversation. Does everything that a teacher reads need to tie back directly to the lesson? No. Um, Because in in the tradition, we talk about this interconnected web of, of knowledge, you know, everything pointing back toward the truth, then it's all going to find a way to speak back to it if it's, well, worth reading, as it were. It's so fascinating because I know that, you know, when when teachers or administrators see students show up to school, and instead of being on their phone or, um, you know, playing, uh, just kind of goofing around, uh, which there's a time and place for all of that. Um, of course. But uh, you know the student who shows up with her book, and kind of kind of sits in the corner, and then like another two students kind of gather around her, and they have their books, and it's sort of the quiet corner, right in the gymnasium. Let's say, we always look at them and, and admire them. Like, look at those guys. Like they are just like that's such a that's such a beautiful thing to see a student reading, right, of their own accord. Right. So why do we have this awkwardness around teachers doing it? <laughs> it's what we should be doing. And, 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 and I encourage everyone to have a book on their person at all times because it's way better than, um, you know, turning to the, uh, the distractions of, of the smartphone and, and things that are trying to pull you out of the present in a, in a, in a very negative way um, because none of that is ultimately satisfying, whereas a book has so much more to give. So there's a, there's a lot that we could talk about in in terms of the administration setting up making space creating a culture for school a for the teachers and that'll sort of uh flow over into the lives of the students i want to think about the individual teacher's responsibility for a minute and i'll tell you a brief anecdote about a interaction i had with a math teacher i was talking to this math teacher friend and he was just really stressed out saying you know i i just don't there's just not enough time in the day for me to grade everything I have to grade. Um, I said, well, and of course I had, I had the ability to be an outsider looking in, which always helps with perspective uh, in, in, in these sort of conversations. I said, well, how many, how many problems does each student have to do? He said, 40. I oh. said, okay. I said, well, do you think you could figure out if they know the math or not, if they did 20? He said, huh, yeah, (laughs) okay, what if they did 10? He said, oh, man, I see where you're going with this, probably. I was like, dude, what if they did two? He's like, yeah, probably. (laughs) And so it was one of those those things where, again, I think it goes back to this idea of business. You know, the the idea we kind of pass on to our students, unless you're doing a lot of this thing, then perhaps you're not doing the the work, so to speak. but but really, we could probably get away with a lot less, which would open up our schedules to other things that are worth doing. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, I absolutely agree. Um, you know, as the uh, 
as the Latin teacher and then as the administrator, you know, if I did assign several several sentences, I, I would still never make it a point to grade them myself. Um, I would put them up on the board the next day and go over them and discuss them. And then students could create their own work, which I think is better teaching anyway. But, you know, multa non multa, right? Um, do it, do it a little better. Don't do so many. Um, and I, I think we, you know, again, thinking about culture and, and the teacher's responsibility here, there's a difference in vigor and rigor. Um, I do not like rigor. I like the concept of, of people being prepared and, you know, the, the principal um, virtues of like diligence, but I don't think people need to be rigorous in that regard. I think that that's just stiffness. And I think automatically about rigor mortis, right? That stiffness of death. Yeah. I want um, to, to use parents phrase of vigor vitae, right? I want that, that energy of life. And um, I think teachers get so caught up sometimes in being teachers rather than in being people who teach. Um, because you know, at the end, we, we talk about how a, a pedagogy will tell us an anthropology, but it, it tells us so much about the anthropology, not just of how we view students, but of how we view ourselves. Um, you know, if I'm the teacher who's assigning so much work that my students are staying up till two or three in the morning, they're not having a chance to cultivate friendships. They're not having a chance to be members of a family. They're not having a chance to be people. Um, one of the things I'm doing in the schedule again, that, that same 85-minute schedule, is my sophomores will have 85 minutes every other day for a study hall to make sure they have time to finish this work. Uh, my juniors and seniors will have that every day uh, because I don't want them you know, burnt out by the time they finish. Um, you know, you talked about this a long while ago on one of the earlier shows. Um, you know, John Sr. didn't want people reading great books too early because they burned out. Here are a thousand good books. Um, and if the goal is to get them to eventually read those greats and then to make, make those into their hearts, you can't just beat them over the head with it. It's the same thing with the classroom. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you bring that up, because as as seniors work is is sort of uh, resurrecting, which, you know, the, like Josh Gibbs talks about, you know, that that's sort of the sign of, 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 a, of good work, you know, sort of within the classical tradition, it, it, it has this tendency to die and resurrect, it kind of goes underground and comes back up again. And, and it's, it's coming back into our, into our view once again, and, and it's good to remind ourselves of his critique and, and caution of the great books programs. Uh, because, again, um, to go back to your point, you know, there, there are some foundational things that we need to read, experiences we need to have, uh, and John Sr. is really a master at, at laying those out. Um, one of the risks that we run in, and, and I think he knew this even uh, in putting together a book list, because at some point in one of his, in one of his uh, chapters, I think in, in the, the Restoration of Christian Culture, he, he warns people about the book list. Uh, and, and so a risk that, that we run there is, is taking his list of 1,000 good books and sort of feeding it into this factory model of education that, again, we have to reimagine through the lens of Scholae to really get at the good stuff there. Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to take uh, these, these books that are, are really sort of in their, in, by their nature, meant to be read in the spirit of Scholae. I mean, they're, they're books that anybody could pick up. These are books that should be in your home. These are books that um, you should take to the beach with you. These are books that you should read um, in a leisurely manner. And, you know, we, we understand that we need to bring some of these things into the school, as John Sr. did, because they're not in the home as, as they once were. And so there's some, there's some 
uh, responsibility that teachers take in conjunction with the parents. You know, it's a balancing act of figuring out, okay, well, ultimately the responsibility to educate this child lies with the parents. We know that this child is not going to be exposed or given some of these things uh, in the home. And so we need to bring them in to the classroom. But what we don't want to do is turn those into a, uh, you know, make that into schoolwork. Uh, John Senior has this, this wonderful phrase that I probably quote way too much on the show, but, you know, you can't, one, one can, uh, it, it's like l trying to love a girl on assignment, right? It's just, if you don't love it already, right, if you don't have a desire for it, um, sort of the assignmentness of it uh, just really creates a, a, a bad relationship between the student and the text. And this isn't just with books. I mean, this is with within any subject matter. And so it seems to me that one of the ways to, to re-envision all of this is to go to what's at the heart of every good teacher, which is a love of the subject matter and a love of the student, and just loving things well in front of them in such a way that, that they want to that they want to be like that. And I'll give one brief example of how that might play out. Um, in a history class that I, that I taught this past year, from one perspective, someone could look at it and say, well, you didn't really do a whole lot. You just read this history book and the students narrated and you had some discussion about it. And that was it. And, and I gotta tell you, it was a pretty simple lesson plan for me to put together. Right. From one perspective, someone could say, well, Mr. Bailey's not really doing doing much at his job as a teacher, right? He needs to be doing a whole lot more because his lesson plan is all of three lines, right? <laughs> Read the book, narrate, and discuss. Like, that's my plan. And I did it every day, you know, day in and day out. The thing about it is, it's so perennially good that the students showed up um, loving history, loving the class, and just being relieved, I mean, the, the relief was palpable, that they didn't have to go through the same sort of, jump through the same sort of hoops that they had to in their other classes. Now, again, mm -hmm. I'm not saying this to impress anybody or to, I, I want to rather impress upon you that you don't have to do a whole lot to uh, give the students, um, establish a really good relationship between them and the subject matter. Sometimes it's just as simple as getting down to the basics of reading, narrating, and discussing. And if you're not doing a lot of activity, that's okay. That, that in a sense, is a, is a relief from, you know, the other five classes they have to do that day. Well, I mentioned earlier those electives that we call Skolay courses that we're offering. Um, that's pretty much the model for the class. Um, this past year, we had magic, mystery, and a wardrobe as a class, and I bet you can guess where we, we went, right? The, the students all started with the magician's nephew and the teacher, and they, they read it, and they discussed it, and they laughed, and they, they enjoyed it. Or we started with hobbits and heroes, so we began with the hobbit, and this year, we're going to pick it up again. Um, and my teachers were at one point concerned, like, how do you grade this type of class? And um, on a traditional model, you, you know the students who are putting in an A worth of effort and the Bs, but that got me to thinking, and um, for those of you who haven't picked up on this or have forgotten already, I work at a public school, right? This is a charter school. And so I contacted admissions offices for so many colleges, you know, Duke, Wake Forest, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, at Greensboro, um, UVA. And I just said, if we had electives that were pass-fail, how would your admissions office look at it? And ultimately, the answer that came back was a resounding, we don't care. As long as you tell us ahead of time that that's the system, that's fine. And imagine the burden that takes off students, like you were suggesting, and the burden it takes off teachers, right? Are my students really falling in love with the journey of, you know, a horse and his boy? Mm. Um, and that'll make more of a difference, right? 
it's all about knowing that at the end of the day, the purpose of education is not to make automatons who do well at being bricks in the wall to use, you know, Pink Floyd. Um, I think that's who it is. Uh, but it's to make people. And, you know, that that's where I think we get lost so often is we just want it to be do more, do more, do more, rather than do less and do it better. Well, we certainly uh, do not need uh, no education, to, to quote Pink Floyd again, uh, at least in the, in the ways that it's been served up to us in, in so many ways. You know, this, this, facu- this um, factory model uh, that has had such an influence, of course, stemming from uh, you know, John Dewey's influence. And, and for those who are interested in the history there, we have a, an episode that will come out uh, in, in due time, a conversation I had with Dr. Margarita Moody Suarez, where we explore the, the, the philosophical underpinnings there. But one of the things that I've so enjoyed about this conversation with you and, uh, and exploring language, but also looking at the ways that uh, these things can, can be played out in a very practical sort of in the trenches way, uh, and, and in your context, at a charter school, I wonder, uh, by means of just sort of um, moving towards the end of our conversation, what words of encouragement do you have for teachers who, who are hearing this or who are caught up in the literature listening to um, you know, voices within the world of classical education or saying, this sounds beautiful, but I just have no idea how to pull this off in my context in a public school setting. What other words of encouragement might you have for them? Um, the the one thing that, that first comes to mind is we always talk about how classical education is is probably the best education system for all. And if it is, and you think that it is, I encourage you one to to look for those classical charter schools that do exist. Um, they're out there. There, there are many. They are growing, um, and they're looking at not the the training of a child, but the formation of an adult. To use um, Henri, and you can do more by by doing less. Um, if your students see that you love what you're doing they'll they'll buy in they'll they'll give you more because they see you as a person um and just when i i think about the to, to the classical education leaders out there who are in these charter schools um you know keep the end in mind you're you're not sitting here trying to think about what this child is going to look like as a snapshot at the end of 10th grade. Um, I had a student several years ago who, uh, we'll, we'll call her Bob, just because that's that's fun. Um, but she'd been given an IEP and was told she would never do well. And uh, for years and years and years on state tests, she came back with with nothing. And then my wife and I were both teaching her one year, and we saw that there was there was a lot more to this girl. And uh, through that relational teaching of, of building that relationship with this child, she came out with uh, a four, which it only goes up to a five on her uh, her English two um, end of course test that the state does, um, which not a lot of people do, and, and you know, according to the statistics. She, she had no chance. Um, and so the system kind of gave up on her. But there are better ways to do education than this, this progressivist model of just get them to check boxes. And uh, I think classical education is the better way to do it. Well, Dr. Looney, I think you're exactly right. And I so appreciate your time. Uh, this, for me, has been a very leisurely conversation, and so thank you for helping me practice Skole in the, the way that we 
uh, converse about these things. And like any good conversation, uh, you know, we are turning together, uh, ideally towards the truth. And I think that the best way to help students turn together uh, is is to is to to follow uh, the, this this way of Scole and and really receive through the tradition the the, the methods and practices, but but primarily the spirit, uh, which can find its own way of expressing itself in in whatever context you find yourself in, whether that's in a, uh, a homeschool situation where you have a lot of uh, liberty and freedom or in a private classical school where uh, there may be um, some, some idea of what this looks like that, that may need to be uh, reimagined or, or uh, reconsidered, or in a public school where this is the last thing uh, that, that you know, the school is even thinking about. But my guess is that uh, even though that the school at, at large may not have these things on the top of their mind, I think that, that many a good teacher does, no matter where she finds herself. I think a lot of teachers um, in their heart of hearts, especially when, when they think about sort of um, why they got into teaching in the first place, it's, it's really about bringing students along uh, into, into a, you know, falling in love with, with things that are true, good, and beautiful, whether the teacher has that classical language to express it or not. So thank you so much for, for partnering with me in this conversation. I, I hope we can have another one soon. I, I really do hope so. Thank you so much. And uh, just one thing I want to add to that, that last bit, I think about Dead Poet Society, where we have all these stuffy teachers, and then Robin Williams comes in to, to shake it up. Well, he's the classical teacher. Mm. And uh, I, I just love that. So thank you so much again. I'm, I'm sorry for that, that one additional little thing. No, no, it's, it's my pleasure. Um, if, uh, if, if, if people can uh, stand on their desk in a, in a leisurely way, I think that'll, that'll inspire a lot of uh, students to, um, to, to kind of think in a, in a way that kind of wakes them up to, to, to reality and, and invites them into uh, this life that we've described. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener-supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, well, my friends... The final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it, as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.